assumption is that an independent central bank will raise interest rates in order to attract money into the country to finance the budget deficit. You know what? This something-for-nothing economics isn't conservative, uh, it's uh, socialism. Under your plans, we are predicted to have a recession. How does he look within giving the grim data of the day? This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. Well, not so long ago, the world was worried about deflation, supposedly exported from China, but also a lack of consumer demand was keeping prices down as well. Now the big worry, of course, is inflation. Well, bank collapses and inflation. So why the big fear of inflation and how easy is it to run out of control? And the obvious question that I feel we've asked several times over recent weeks, are central banks going the right way about reducing it? What will inflation do to us? Is it all bad or are there some benefits of rising prices? That's this week. Now, in January, UK inflation was at 10.1%. Uh, 8.6% for the Eurozone, 7.8% for Australia, down to 6.5% in the United States, where it had been higher. Why, even Japan, up to 4.4%. When it kicked off, you know, we had central banks and commentators saying that it was all supply-side inflation. Now they're talking about it being more broad-based. But why would that be? Why why are we seeing inflation shooting up? And why, if it if it started as a concern that this was all driven by supply chains being held back? I mean, first of all, was that the cause of this rise in inflation that we're seeing around the world? And why would it become so contagious? It became more broad based, and it wasn't just supply side; it was wages and everything else mm. that was pushing prices up. Well, this is, you know, again, I'm going to defer to Blair Fix in terms of doing the, the detailed analysis on this. So look at Blair Fix's work for the for the best detailed argument. But I always come back to Koleski's way of looking at how prices are set. And it, you know, it basically says the prices are set by three major factors. The markup manufacturers are able to put on their input costs the major external input cost they have, which is predominantly wages, and then the speed at which they can produce output, the productivity uh, factor. And when you look at it, there's no way you can blame wages for the increase in prices when it began. You can blame uh, the supply chain coming through and saying it takes longer to produce, so you have higher costs and uh, all the shortages that occurred under COVID and so on, and also energy. And we're really reaching uh, a, a critical point, a turning point in the global economy in energy, mm. a critical essence thing which is, hasn't occurred for 250 years. So it's it's big. And that's going to be sort of the continuing source of trouble as we go forward. But when you look at COVID, one thing COVID did was make governments do what they should do, which is create large amounts of money when there's a financial downturn. But that money then meant that anybody wanted to go shopping for things which you could buy during COVID. There was tons of money. What that meant from the manufacturer's point of view, they'd look at the amount of demand coming in. From their point of view, there was no shortage of demand. So they can put their markups up. Yeah. So when you look at the data... The so this pro- was a case where we could say simple supply and demand. It's profit. No, it's profit-driven. Right. Okay? It's not supply and demand. It's, that's the usual nonsense. But but but, it, but, it won't, but we were saying, you know, there was a shortage of supply and there was yeah, more, yeah. It's, more it's, people... Forget, more forget people, the curves. Forget the curves. Yeah, yeah. They're, but, no, they're nonsense. But what you have got is, you know, higher costs. You, and as a manufacturer, you try to pass your costs on. Mm. And then incredible demand. So you think you can put your markups up as well. Yeah. And so the pro- it was a profit, uh, a markup-driven cost of production-driven 
driven start to it. But then you had, because we had 40 years of screwing workers' wages, so the people at the bottom of the income distribution, and that includes nurses and teachers and, you know, a large white middle class these days. It isn't just your factory workers. There aren't many factory workers left in the West to get screwed. They're all in China and places like that instead. But what it meant was people who are you know, struggling already to feed the kids, struggling to keep their places warm, face huge increases in their energy costs and, 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 and seeing all the other costs rising as well. And they then are saying, I don't care. I've got to demand a wage rise. So you start seeing strikes, which we haven't seen for decades, spreading through largely through the service sector mm. industries, and so that's going to give you a continuation of so inflation. Another, yeah, another uh, can, another it, input that goes up in price. And we've paid for the incredible distortion of the of the distribution of income that's happened under neoliberalism. So what about which is the argument that you know neoliberals do give uh, that it's driven by people's expectations of inflation? So, oh, it's bloody neoclassical theory once more. Janet I mean, Yellen calls it inflationary psychology. So, uh, so we get a rise in inflation. Uh, so we expect that it's going to continue to rise. So yeah, we, I mean, this is just neoclassical bloody theory again. And if people go and look at this stuff, you know. If, if, that's why I, in, when I force my students to read the original sources and see where this nonsense comes from. And Milton Friedman's explanation in The Optimum Quantity of Money, which I think he wrote back in 1951 or there, maybe 50, 56, some of that time period, he tried to explain how he could be in, in equilibrium across all markets simultaneously and still have rising prices. And it was all a theory of, of money creation that said the government creates the money. And this is the, the helicopter analogy, which mm. occurred in that paper, The Optimum quantity of money, that helicopter analogy was effectively the Federal Reserve as a helicopter. Okay? So all money creation is caused by the government, which is wrong. Yeah. It's done by the central bank, which is wrong. It's the treasury that creates the money. Okay? There's also private sector money creation, which they leave out completely. So you know, the nonsensical theory to start with. And in trying to explain why prices would still rise when you were in, in a situation of general equilibrium, it's just because people expect prices to rise. Because there's more money. No, which no, it, because they, they say the money supply is going at 10%, real rate rate is 3%, therefore you've got to have a 7% rate of inflation. That's all the fault of too many helicopters. But people then start to expect it, so the helicopters are forced to... Which to is still it's, the argument you hear, you know, the pub conversation. Why have we got this The pub conversation shows is, how much we've been brainwashed by neoclassical yeah, economists. Because that pub conversation is, we've got inflation because too much money's been created. Yeah, I know. And, and, and therefore okay. the money's... And, what, each, and it, the simple argument that people have in their mind is, if you've got... Too much uh, money, to, too, too much goods. money. There, well, yeah. no, not even that. Just if you've got so much more money than you had before, mm. then each individual note must be worth less because there's so much more of it now. Yeah, yeah. And there are is, there is some elements of, of sense in that trivial theory, but the fundamental said, who puts prices up? Who actually makes the decisions? And then you come down to it's the, the markup you're willing to put on your prices. So it's a, core, it's a boardroom decision about, you know, you've, you've got your costs, how much you reckon we can get away with as a profit margin. And, and when you have a huge amount of money creation, that gives you more room to do that. Mm. So I think what, what I see it is, is that it's the decisions about uh, prices which drive the money supply. If you go back to um, the, the original uh, significant writer in the theory of endogenous money in the post-Keynesian movement was Basil Moore with a paper called The Endogenous Money Stock back in 1979 in the post Journal of Post-Keynesian Economics, which, of course, no neoclassical would read. But in doing empirical work on that, he argued that rather than causation going from money to prices, it's prices to money because we have an elastic monetary system. We don't have this you know, Federal Reserve controlling it and they've got to put the money in the helicopters. The private banks create money. Uh, if you have an increase 
increase in your production costs, you've already negotiated a line of credit with the bank. Mm. The bank can't stop you creating that money. You access the line of credit. It's exactly the same thing. We have a credit card. Uh, you create. If you go out and buy a ten thousand pound uh, stereo system, you've created ten thousand pounds. Okay, so the the money creation process is nowhere near as simple as Milton Friedman's paper made it out to be. And that elasticity of the money supply from the private sector side is why you can get that, you know, in, in those days, you can get that increase in money. Because we've allowed that to push to the limit, we're now at the point where, where that's that's breaking. Right. You know, there's too much but the, private but the, but debt. The, but you don't do that. You don't buy that £10,000 system unless the economy is really good and you're feeling very wealthy, you won't go to the banks. So that's when demand for money yeah, and, and then, money creation increases when times are good rather than when times are bad. Yeah, potentially. But but, but the, the main factor is that it's, it's it, the main cause of inflation is a struggle over the distribution of income. Mm. And then and this is where now, and that's that's been the long-term reality of capitalism. But the short, the one we've now got, which is really the ultimate long-term, is the cost of energy. Yeah. Because if we... But before we get on to that, let's yeah. say, I know we will come back to energy, because okay, I, yeah. I know it's important. Just going back to your £10,000 stereo yeah, system, yeah. right? I see it in the window in the shop, and I go, £10,000, that's brilliant. I go to the bank and say, I've got Tina, I want to borrow £10,000, because times are good. No, 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 you don't have to borrow the bank, you've got a credit card. All right, okay, I use my credit card, because it's already been arranged. Okay, that's, so, that's, okay. that's the point, so, the, the, the right. flexibility of the money But I don't want to there. spend that money if times are bad. I'm not going to spend £10,000 and put no. myself into debt, so the economy must be feeling fairly good. That means there'll be somebody else who's... Th- feeling fairly good and wants to buy that stereo as well mm. and so that's where you start to get the markup so the company says well it's not ten thousand pounds anymore because there's you and a whole load of other people who've got space on your it's credit up card to twelve thousand we'll put our markups 12. up yeah and, and so what we have really seen and this is where blair's done some great work on the on the data as well it, it, incredibly high profit margins mm. and that's so the, the and we've the, seen that so to, yeah. uh, coming out of the uh, out of the pandemic mm. Strong earnings results just about everywhere in the world, particularly in the United States. Companies mm. doing really well, uh, you know, beating expectations mm. uh, in terms of, uh, you know, how much money they made, how much profit they made. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the evidence is all there. So this idea then about, uh, you know, this this inflationary psychology, is there, is there anything in that at all? You know, so because I saw so a recent chart from Oxford Economics, which is probably, you know, you might see them as being the epicenter of, uh, of all that's bad in the mm. economics world. I don't know. But they're saying... Uh, they had a chart saying 43%, this is fairly recent, 43% of US households saw inflation being at 4% in the medium term compared to just 5% of professional forecasters and central banks. So you've got the central banks and the forecasters saying interest rates, sorry, inflation rates are going to come down. Yeah. uh, And you've got households going, no, we think they're where they are now for quite some time. Mm. There's got to be some impact on that. There is there? some impact. Because those there companies will be saying, yeah. yeah, well, we can. Fantastic. We've seen that expectation that, yeah. that we're just going to keep on. Yeah. But then, then it's a question of pushing can prices you, up. Can you turn those expectations into negotiating a successful wage rise? Mm-hmm. And like this, this is the, the thing we've broken over 40 years ago. If you go back to the period of the Vokler um, in, inflation, you're talking the 70s and 80s, we are talking half a century ago. Yeah. You had much stronger unions. And then if there was an increase in, in, in cost of living, then the unions were in a position to, to bargain and negotiate with the managers on behalf of the workers and get those wage rises. Now we've destroyed the union movement. There is no 
bargaining capacity on the union side. You're now seeing unions being formed again for the first time in places like Amazon and Walmart and so on. Um, so there's a, a reunionization starting to happen. But we're also, it's the fault of the unions. The unions are driving up prices, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Yeah. Well, now the prices are going up without the unions. Okay, so it comes down to the unions were protecting the distribution of income for the for the working class right. and the So what class. we're seeing instead is yes, those companies doing really well because they have managed to mm. increase prices with rising inflation mm. and their markups have gone up rather than paying it in wages. Yeah. So the shareholders you've got to bring the markups down. I mean, so, that, that, forget mm. about the workers' unions. You've got to worry about the capitalist unions. Yeah. You've got to bring down the markups, and that's where again it's negotiation that's more likely to work on this front. Uh, the, the government, uh, you know, as as the prices and incomes are called, were supposed to be in Australia, uh, trying to make sure you don't get you know, excessive markups being and then passed on through the monetary system. So is that applied anywhere in the world? Uh, Does that actually happen anywhere in the world? Where it happened you... in Sweden. We were trying to copy the Swedish system. Right. Now the Sweden's gone more right wing than Australia, so it's hard to say. So how did that, in, in in practice? How would that work? So you'd say to companies, okay, there's only a certain percentage. Yeah. If yeah. we if we see, we look at your accounts at the end of the year, if look you at made the markups, some... yeah. Right, and that's too much. And instead, it was all about reducing wages. The, what instead had happened with that particular system is that was the basis of when superannuation was built. So workers then accepted, rather than accepting wage rises, which would turn up and cause inflation, they accepted uh, a trade-off. So it turned up in superannuation. That led, that led to the growth of the superannuation industry, right. which I'm no great fan of. Which is held by the company, so the company will be holding those super yeah. funds. And they've got a large amount of cash, and they dip into it. Which and is don't always pay dangerous. Their entitlements quite frequently. Yeah, and then the company okay. crashes, and everyone loses their super. So that's that's not a very good sound model at all, is it? But what about um, before we take a break, and we will talk about energy as well when we yeah. when we come back. There is uh, there is it does become a bit self fulfilling, doesn't it? And the prices go up, uh, so that causes a bit of a spiral. Yeah. And it can take a long time to it slow can. down. And, and like what, what happened in the Australian case is that you know, the unionists, and I'll, I'll actually quote uh, Laurie Carmichael, who was the uh, leading brains behind the Australian Metal Workers Union at the time in a personal conversation. And Laurie said, look, we've got these huge wage rises in 1972 or 73, 17%, and we saw it all go in inflation. Mm. So we just realised we get screwed. We, we can put the wages up, but the manufacturers can put good markups up afterwards, and we don't come out any better. So we've got to find some other system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because if you're running a business and you see that there's inflation happening, and if you've done quite well with markups, you will just forecast for the next year and the year after and the year after that, that inflation is going to continue, mm. uh, and you're telling your shareholders that's what's going to yeah. that's what's going to happen. What you're really doing is you're disguising a struggle over the distribution of income with rising prices. Mm. All right. I'm still curious as to, so the, the, the questions today really are, what is inflation doing to us? Mm. We're sort of answering it, but, you know, who's 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 hurting? And why have we gone from deflation to inflation? Why did it happen so quickly? Why were we worried about deflation before? Mm, and yeah. we also want to talk about the oil of energy. So we've got a lot to cover in the second half. And so we better get on to it. We'll take a quick break. Back in just a second. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. So we're looking at inflation and how we've got to inflation from deflation. Uh, that was quite a transition, wasn't it? So was it all COVID? Would, would this have happened without COVID? I, I think a large part of it was COVID. There's also, as I said, there's a long-term trend to re reducing energy return on energy invested, and that has to end up causing cost of production to rise. That's the squeeze we're going to go through right. over the next 30, 20 So this is not years. going to correct itself because we're no, always going to have the energy issue. Yeah, right. and and this is like I, when I focused on debt, because no, my, my original 
blog was called DebtDeflation.com yeah. for good reason. Because yeah. I expected deflation uh, starting in the, in the 90s, and, and that's what's happened for that length of time. I wasn't focusing upon energy at the time. I now that's become a major, major interest. So when I look at uh, what that's going to mean in terms of the uh, cost of living and, and the, standard of, the standard of living, we face declining standard of living. And it either turns up through, you know, it'll, it'll turn up through rising prices or falling incomes, you know, because ultimately the amount of money that's left over after we pay the energy costs involved in production will not be what we've got used to. And, and so we've had a, a false prosperity and that false prosperity could unwind through inflation now rather than deflation. Unless we find a way of tapping energy more effectively so it becomes more cost effective. Not possible. Too big a job. Hmm? Too big a job to do that, is well, it? Well, I mean, the, 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 we, we've, we've been exploiting the most energy-dense product on the planet short of nuclear power itself uh, in exploiting oil. And this is... Uh, you know, we, 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 we have not realised the extent to which we're dependent upon cheap energy and how the, what we called the Industrial Revolution was really the Energy Revolution because there was, you know, before the, the development of the steam engine, uh, then the motive force was you know, had water and wind to some extent, but most of the motive force was animal and human uh, energy. And so you get a very small amount of energy. Most of our uh, work had to go into getting food out of the ground. So basically, you, 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 you were the, the primary need for a functional society was to cover the base needs of consumption, mm. food, clothing, shelter, and anything above that was a luxury. And we were back in the days of, uh, you know, of... Um, of Charles Dickens in terms of the distribution, or even worse than Charles, to go back a century before that. Uh, the increase in prosperity we've had has been driven by the exploitation of cheap energy. Yeah. And the cheap energy, when we first started... Uh, with or cheap labour. Huh? Or cheap labour. No, 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 forget cheap labour. Cheap energy is what matters. So let's take food as an example then, because mm. that's an interesting one, because we, we need that. And mm. if, if food prices go up, um, then you know we're, I mean, that is a major cause of, of inflation, and yeah. it, it affects our lifestyle enormously. So that was driven by cheap labour, uh, you know, the ability to get cheap food because we could get people to pick food in the fields. We we that that's gone. Those times have gone. We were relying more and more on automation, and obviously that automation involves machinery. Okay. If you're going to replace labour with with machines, you need oil. And you've you've talked and coal. Fun, and you've talked fondly about how the fact in in Holland you've got these massive greenhouses, which are heated by fossil fuels because yeah. the greenhouses themselves won't accumulate enough solar energy to be warm enough for the plants. Yeah. So again, you're pumping in energy in the form of oil and gas to keep them warm enough, and then you you also have, um, oh, pardon me, I lost my train of thought. Uh, okay, I can edit. That's all right. So okay. I'll, I'll go back to talking about the greenhouses. Yeah. So you, you've talked in the past about, you know, the, these greenhouses mm. that exist in, in Holland and, mm. the, and you know, the fact, but they, they obviously, you know, we're getting a lot of food from there, but obviously they require a lot of fuel as and, well. And, and they, yeah. because they're not, they're not warm enough on their own right to mm. be, they've got to be heated by gas and by oil. Yeah, uh, quite a lot from what I've heard. A huge amount. And the, yeah. the other side, of course, even the, 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 the great open fields we see, we think we're not putting oil on those, but we're putting superphosphate. Mm. And superphosphate is made using oil right. as well as phosphate. Yeah. So we have an enormous dependence upon energy, cheap energy, to have cheap food. Now, when we start to see we a, a, for, for simply for reasons of global warming, we can't generate as much carbon dioxide. That itself is a squeeze. But we've also got to the point where we've exhausted 
the conventional sources of oil, and we only have things like tar sands and fracking and so on, which were cheap for a while but will cease being cheap. That takes a large amount of energy input to get your energy output, and ultimately that gap falls. And what that means is with a low energy return and energy invested, you simply can't afford the luxurious lifestyles that the entire culture's got used to. Most of that enjoyed by a tiny fraction of the population. We're gonna, it has to come okay, down. Okay, and, and then we've down. got the distribution of income issue coming because the rich aren't about to become less rich. Yeah. They want to see the poor well, become more poor. Yeah, well, let's let's go through that step by step then. So prices mm. start to increase because the cost of producing stuff goes up because the, the cost of energy goes up. Yeah. So that comes through in inflation. Yep. So it just gets worse and worse. We, food we, prices we, rise. And food because, prices rise. So we all say, well, we'll go to our boss and say, well, okay, we need more money now. And that's the, the workers will have is like having to demand those wage rises. Yeah. yeah. And so you get a lock-in. So, but, but then you're getting a spiral because how, how does that stop? Where does it yeah. – how do you reach the plateau where you actually go, okay, well, inflation has calmed down now. Sorry mm. that you're spending uh, 50% of everything you earn on, on trying on to survive. Alone, food and transport, yeah. Um, but how, do, how does that plateau – and, and you're right. The, the, that As we've been seeing you know, over recent years, mm. the, the poorer people are spending a higher proportion of their money – on food and, the, and, the, the, and accommodation as well, and yeah. the, the very wealthy are less worried about that uh, because they've got so much more. And cash so it's to again spare. the distribution of income yeah. that comes in and squeezes. So if you, uh, you know, if, if if you let those energy prices rise, uh, then a large part of your population simply can't afford to survive. And that is a dysfunctional society. They will fight fight back as best they can. So you start getting strikes and. And, and and we're seeing a dramatic rise in industrial activity in the last couple of years as well. Uh, but fundamentally, it's the distribution of income that got us into the situation because we let their wages fall so low and the low wages were dependent upon low costs of production mm. of energy and, and, and consumer goods. Consumer goods, we reduced the cost by globalization and outsourcing. Uh, to lower wages, it wasn't anything about the comparative advantage. It was you're paying workers in China less to produce the output than you're paying workers in the, the West. Now, that's starting to unwind as well. So all these things imply rising prices. And you, if, you, if the rising prices don't also mean rising incomes to match them for the people in the working class levels, 25%, 40% of the population will be unable to buy enough food, certainly be unable to buy enough energy, and you'll start but getting are, social breakdown. Are there things that we spend money on that don't rely on energy, though? So could we have a situation where, for example, so we see, we see inflation going up because of food prices. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and and everything's going up as a, as a consequence of it. So we, uh, one of the things about if you see inflate, high inflation coming up and you've got money, you bring forward your purchases. So you, you actually potentially increase the speed of money. And if you could increase the speed of money on things that don't require so much energy, like, you know, you go, OK, I'm going to have a massage every morning and I'm going to spend uh, 25 quid on that. I don't know how much how much you pay for a massage, Steve, you do more, that sort of stuff. Uh, the uh, You know, how, how much does it all work out at, at the end of the day? You know, where you start to use uh, um, public services, you know, you, uh, you using people rather than energy. You start to become a more service-orientated economy. It's a lovely less myth. Reliant. It's a lovely myth. I mean, I get this from... But uh, couldn't it just balance? You see what a point. You get a faster... Well, yeah, you, you decouples because you've got a faster turnover of money uh, we still spend a great proportion of the of our money on food, but we've got this other economy which is growing beyond that, which is less reliant on energy, a service-driven economy. No. No. 
I mean, you know that look he gives me. By the way, listeners, he gives me <laughs> he gives me this blank look as like you, you stupid idiot, which which doesn't come across well on a Sorry podcast. Sorry about that. But Sorry. I'm just trying to be devil's advocate. Trying, you know, yeah, I'm know, trying to give our life some, some when optimism. You, when you look when you look at the global level, there is no decoupling. Mm. Okay, there's two. Uh, my approach basically says GDP is energy transformed into useful work, and that the. the I mean, when I look at the relationship between energy and GDP at the global level, it's a straight line fit between the amount of energy and the amount of GDP. And the correlation coefficient for those and that sort of thing is 0.997, which is pretty close to one. And then when you look at the change in energy and change in GDP, the correlation coefficient is 0.86. It's over 50, 60 years of data for the, you know, bringing all the economies in the world together. So decoupling, I'm sorry, it's not, isn't happening. Fundamentally, if you want to do a first approximation of what GDP is, it's, it's energy transformed into useful work. So if you're going to have less energy, you're going to have less GDP, not more. So did you see Elizabeth Warren? Uh, I try to avoid that. Well, she was, uh, it was interesting. You would have enjoyed it. She was talking uh, to uh, the uh, governor of the Federal Reserve. Oh, okay. And she can give people a hard time. This is true. She yeah. was giving him a hard time. Yeah. And uh, she was asking about, you know, how fixing inflation with interest rates, how can, she asked the question, she didn't get a straight answer, yeah. how can a central bank, by pushing up interest rates, uh, fix price gouging, supply chain kinks, and a war in Ukraine? How are you going to fix all of yeah. that? She then went on to say, by your own figures, you are going to make 2 million people unemployed yeah. by pushing up interest rates. I was thinking Janet Willen, by the way, with my comment, but I much more prefer to watch... Um, Elizabeth Warren. Yeah, much yeah, more yeah. prefer to watch her. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, so making all these people unemployed, so yeah. you're basically adding to that uh, wealth divide by mm. trying to contain inflation by interest rates. It's and the sort of workers are already being screwed. The wage rises were well below the rate of inflation. So you know, it's, it's again, it comes back to the economic models uh, in which the only real source of rising prices is rising wages. Yeah. And therefore, they think if, uh, if if they can reduce inflationary expectations, then workers will demand lower wage rises and you'll get rid of inflation that way. But they didn't cause it in the first place. So the only way of stopping it, I mean, we have to accept that it's it's there, but the only way of stopping it, uh, it being taken advantage of and getting that that rich poor divide just getting worse is to stop price gouging. That's the, yeah, that's, yeah. That's and it also means that, you know, a lot of stuff is going to have to be rationed and state distributed. Mm. Uh, it, it is you, you can't afford socially a situation in which 25% of the population can't afford to live. Yeah, and now because of the incredibly skewed income distribution we have now, that's probably the level. I mean, the UK, the Office of National Statistics put out a, a piece about well, a month ago saying that I think 25% of the UK population found they had to make a choice between heating the house or feeding the kids. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? It is crazy. That That is that is a declining uh economic system, not a not a rising one. And if you're a declining one, if you let the poor stick with the, the skewed distribution they've got right now, they're going to die and they don't take kindly to that. So the government needs to step in somehow. The problem is the government steps in, they, they tend to favour the wrong half yeah, of they, the population. They, yeah. So I'll give you an example of that. Uh, government payments in the, in U, in the US uh, meant per person savings in US households Increased by 2.3 trillion from 2020 through to the summer of 21, so yep. the you know the height of the pandemic. Yep. These are according to numbers from the from the Federal Reserve. Yep. Of the 2.3 trillion extra savings, 350 billion went to the lower half of uh, households uh, by income level, 
Uh, so 1.35 trillion went to the went, wealthy. Went to, went to the wealthy. So uh, who didn't need it? Mm. Uh, I mean, that's so. Yeah, 350 billion versus 1.3 trillion. Yeah, uh, yeah, you know, and that's, that's same size people. Yeah, so even and and this again shows the extent to which our public institutions have been taken over by neoclassical economists who think they're doing the right thing. This is the trouble. They think they're doing the right thing. You can't persuade them they're doing the wrong thing. But you get figures like that and say, what's going on here? Okay, mm. that, the empirical data screams you're giving the money to the wrong people. Yeah, well, and those those people at that that bottom half, it also shows uh, we're spending that money paying down debts. So they're yeah, trying to get their yeah. credit card down to a, a, a reasonable level so yeah. they weren't paying so much servicing their debts. Whereas that top half with that, you know, trillion or so were there waiting to spend it on goods, mm. uh, which pushed up inflation, which made life worse for that bottom half. Mm. And so it goes on. Yeah. So you can't get away from the distribution of income. And this, again, is one reason why neoclassical economics is such a dangerous ideology for our planet, because their basic definition of their, 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 their basic unit in their thinking, the, the, the consumer, the isolated consumer, they have no concept of the distribution of income between consumers. Now, what that means is they, they don't see the damage they're doing their lens won't let them actually see it taking place, and they think wages are set by productivity. Yeah. And they blame it. It's not productivity. It's bargaining power. And what we've done is they've massively weighted the power of the bargaining power in favour of the rich. So and they don't even know they're doing it. That's half the trouble. Right. I want to look more about uh, rate rises and, and you know, the impact it's had on, on uh, inequality um, mm. in, in, in a couple of weeks' time. Mm. Just very quickly finishing off today, why why deflation then? Why did we go through such a long period of deflation? If you can give a quick answer to that. Well, basic, well it wasn't deflation, was it? It was stagnation, really. Stagnation. Yeah. It, was, it was the aftermath of the financial mm-hmm. crisis. Uh, if you hadn't had government intervention at that time, then bankruptcies caused, caused a chain reaction of bankruptcies. And as Fisher argued brilliantly back in 1933 in his paper, The Debt Deflation Theory of Great Depressions, when you have a, a debt crisis, uh, people's response is to liquidate what they've got to try to pay their own debts. And when they liquidate, what happens is prices and incomes fall faster uh, than the debt levels. So you get a rising debt level, even though a rising ratio of debt to income, even though debt levels themselves are falling. So that's the danger of deflation. We managed to avoid it just by the scale of government spending back in the 2000s. And, and QE, QE, that was a badly thought out policy, at, at least provided a bit of a backstop to stop us falling into massive deflation. So we, we didn't have that experience, but it's still dangerous because what it means is your debt burden rises. And that's the danger. Now, we're stuck with a high level of private debt, and that's one of the many curses we've got courtesy of letting neoclassical economists but it did come down, But that debt did come down a bit because we saw that money being pumped in by the government. It, a tiny because amount. Of the pandemic. Private mm. debt. I mean, people mm. think you know, all the way you see all this stuff, government debt's too high, you know, the some debt ceiling, blah, blah, blah. In America's case, I think private debt's 1.7 times the scale of government debt. Mm. Okay. Every last country, bar a few basket cases, uh, the private debt is far higher than government debt, and you won't get the bastards talking about private debt because they don't understand the banking system. So, will we go back to a stage where we where we were, where we have a stagnant economy with no inflation? In fact, the fear of deflation. No, I think it's going to be a stagnant economy with inflation now because of the cost of energy. Right. Okay. Look forward to that. We always end on a high note on I this do, podcast. Yeah, yeah. Uh, try. <laughs> all right. Next time, I want to look at um, at, at a contentious topic, as always, uh, immigration. 
Good or bad? Oh, dear. Uh, People have already formed their view on that. We don't need to tell them. They've already got their ideas on that, but we'll look at it next week. Okay. The Debunking Economics Podcast. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y-Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y-Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.